I think we should all stand and hold hands and pray for Paula right now. Her confession. Hey, good morning. I got six more minutes. It's still morning. Um, Last week, we jumped back into this series in Philippians, a series that we're calling A Satisfied Life. The idea is that we have this opportunity to have more joy, more courage, more contentment in our lives. And one of the foundational truths that we've established as we walk through this amazing letter is that our contentment, our joy, our satisfaction isn't based on circumstances. It's really based on our understanding and our ability to live into our understanding of the love of God. The more we know who God is, the more we, we, we settle into that, the more we meditate on that, the more we can move through life's difficulties and still have a great sense of contentment in our lives. Who we are and how we respond is not shaped by what we're going through. It's shaped by who we know. So grab your Bibles and turn to chapter 4 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. We are in verses 2 through 9. Verses 2 through 9. That's page 832 in the Bibles under your seat. I hope you bring in your Bibles. I hope you bring your Bibles every Sunday. I hope that you take notes in your Bible. I hope that you have a sheet. I had somebody come down after the first service and say they've been taking notes on the bulletin and then they go home and they transfer that into a, a notebook. That is going to go so far, such a long ways for you in helping you to retain whatever is being taught on Sunday. If you remember, uh, Kevin even challenged us that only 20% of what you hear you remember. But if you take the time to write it down, you're going to get so much more. So hopefully you're doing that. So we're in this home stretch in the series on Philippians. As a matter of fact, we're going to wrap it up in the 13th. Next week, we're going to do the celebration for Brian and Holly and, and the great service that they've been here for the last decade. And then on the 13th, we're going to close out this series. And as a matter of fact, Paul is sort of wrapping things up as well. We're to a point in his letter where he is beginning to bring things full circle. He's beginning to remind us or recap some of the main themes of the letter. Themes like joy and peace and unity and contentment are all addressed in just these few verses that I'm about to read. And what Paul's really doing here is he's making kind of one last swing or one last attempt, one last grab at helping the people who are reading the letter to understand what it is he wants them to do, how he wants them to live out their lives. He's instructing them one more time in these particular arenas, if you will. So let's read today's passage, Philippians Chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Paul writes, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syndicate to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is any excellence or and praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen? There's a lot in there. Lord, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the letter to the church in Philippi. Thank you for the way you have used that throughout the centuries to shape your church, to shape your followers. 
Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his faithfulness in, in writing this down. Thank you that it's been preserved for us so that on such a day as this, we can stand in this church and unpack such amazing exhortation, such amazing encouragement. Lord, I just pray that, that for these next few minutes, whatever you desire for us to hear would be clear and the things that are not of you would just fall away. So we just ask that your spirit would guide the rest of this talk. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here last week, Bryce asked us a great question, a question that really got my mind spinning a lot. He asked us, what kind of a follower are you? What kind of a follower are you? And it was a great question. It really just caused me to start thinking, what kind of a follower am I? And, and the other thing that it began to do is it began to, to shape another question in my mind. And the question that it started to shape in my mind that I want to ask today is, well, what kind of a church are we? Bryce asked this question. He said, do you want everything that God has for you? Do you really want all that God has for you? And it made me ask the question, do we? Do we as a church want everything that God has for us? You know, as we grow and, and as we learn to follow Jesus, as we continue to live into that million-dollar question that Bryce put out there, that's what he called it, was what kind of a follower is you? We learn to live into that. It will determine what kind of a church we have. Because church isn't a place that you go to. Church isn't a, a building that you come to. Church isn't a, a, a set of programs that we have. Church isn't the, the leadership here. Church is so much more than that. It's a group of individuals. It's a body of believers. It's a organism, if you will. Paul tells us that it's a, it's a body, it's a, it's a fellowship, and as followers of Christ, the way we live out our faith in Jesus will affect who we are as a church. The question is, are we really a mosaic striving to live like Jesus? Are we really a mosaic striving together, locking arms, living out life in community, one with each other, really helping each other to live out our faith, to grow into the understanding of Christ? Are we really a mosaic striving to live like Jesus? Or are those just words that we've painted on the wall? The question is, what kind of a church are we? One of the things that we've said throughout this series on Philippians is that it has the potential to change who we are. This one letter has the potential to radically transform who we are as followers of Christ. It has this ability to change who we are and in turn change who we are as a church. It is instructional and inspirational. And I love that about Philippians. It's, there's so much in here that's just like, like so inspiring, yet it's so practical. There are things we're going to see today that are just practical ways that we can live into our faith and live out this understanding of who Christ is in our lives. So in today's passage, Paul starts with this cry for unity. And it's not a new theme for the letter. It's been throughout the entire letter. As a matter of fact, there's no doubt that when Paul sat down to write this letter, he knew of the conflict that existed in Philippi. He knew about it, and so it's, it's woven throughout the entire letter. So if you look in chapter 1, he says things like, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, stand firm in one spirit, contend as one man, or in this case, woman, for, for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. And now, now he gets incredibly specific. And he really comes at it head on. He's not just, he's not just putting it out there as a, as a theme. He's coming right at it. And he writes something that's actually pretty shocking. So look at verse 2. He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syndicate to agree with each other in the Lord. Now what we have to remember is 
Paul knew when he was writing this letter that it was going to be read to the church. All of his letters were intended not only to be read to that church, but to be read to other churches. They, they became part of the oral tradition and the written tradition, but they knew this, that somebody was going to stand in front of this congregation and they were going to read this. Imagine being those two women, right? I mean, just think about it. You're about to have this letter written by the apostle and you are called out by name and told you two need to learn to get along. You need to put aside your petty differences and be in one in spirit, be one in the Lord. Imagine the weight of that in the letter. It's very unusual for Paul to be this aggressive, but that's how important it is for Paul because Paul has already taught us that, hey, it's your unity that is going to help people to know who the church is. Your witness is how well you guys are together. Matter of fact, he says it'll be a sign to those who are wasting away. Our unity is what becomes our witness. And Paul knows that. So he goes to these extreme measures to call them out by name. And then he says, hey, to those of you who are with me, my fellow yoke fellow, to the rest of the church, you need to come alongside these women and you need to help them to be in unity. This is something we do together. We strive together to live like Jesus. And here's the deal. We have no idea what the disagreement was about. And I think that is by design. I think that's a good thing. Because sometimes when scripture lacks specific clarity to a problem, it helps us to make the application into our own lives. I call this the uh, thorn in the flesh principle. I don't, I don't know where I got that, but that's what I call it. So in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, the same guy that wrote Philippians, writing 2 Corinthians, and he says, I, have, I had a thorn in the flesh. What does he mean by that? He means he had a problem. He had something that was nagging on him. He had some kind of, of weighty thing, something that was just an annoyance to him, something that was, was hard for him to get through. He had a thorn in the flesh. And he says, and I prayed to God that he would remove it. And God said, no. Now remember, this is Paul. I mean, Paul's the guy that people were healed in his shadow. Right? Think of all the miracles Paul was a part of. Think of the, the work that he did. And if anybody should hear yes from God, don't you think it should be Paul? I mean, Paul has really dug in. He's done everything that God wants. But he's suffering from something. He says, God, take this away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, we have no idea what was going on with Paul. We have no idea what his affliction was. So I've heard... I've heard so many different talks where people have made conjecture and people have said, well, it was, it was a demonic thing. He was being oppressed by a spirit. I've heard, oh, it's because he's short. I'm not sure where they get that. Oh, it's because he has a speech impediment. Oh, it's, it's, I've heard everything you can think of. I even heard one guy teach that it's because he had migraines. Like how in the world you could ever know that what Paul was talking about migraine, I'm guessing that guy had migraines and that was the best way he could relate to this. But that's the point. Because it's saying, whatever your thorn in the flesh is, whatever that is that's nagging on, whatever that thing is that's holding you down, that you are having trouble getting rid of, God is saying to you, through what Paul is saying, look, if you knew what Paul's affliction was, then you could say, yeah, but I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing with this. Yeah, but I don't have that problem. I got this problem. The fact that it's, it's unknown to us is a good thing because do you know whatever you're going through, God's grace is sufficient for you? Did you hear what I just said? Whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties you have, God may say, no, I'm not going to take that away because my grace is sufficient because I'm more concerned with shaping your character and making you into the image of my son. I want you to go through something and my grace is sufficient to carry you through. And if Paul had to go through it, then we should expect that we're going to go through things as well. So that lack of clarity becomes a way that we can apply it. So we have the same thing with these two women. We don't know what they were fighting about. We have no idea. So guess what? It applies to all of us. 
that we are to be one in the Lord, that we are to put aside the secondary things and focus on the main thing. And the main thing is Christ. The main thing is Jesus resurrected. The main thing is who Christ is and all that he has done for us. When we focus on the gospel, it makes everything else peripheral. It makes everything else fall away. So what kind of a church are we? What kind of a church are we? Are we able to put aside our petty differences? Are we able to agree in the Lord? Are we contending as one man for faith in the gospel? Do we have unity in our church? One of the things I love about Grace is we put a stake in the ground a few years back and we said that we are going to value, one of our written values that's on the wall is that we are going to be others focused. That we are actually going to put aside our own interests to prefer others. You know when one of the ways we do that is in our worship style. It's something that you can practice every single Sunday because some Sundays it's going to be exactly what you wanted and you're going to love it. Other Sundays it's going to be different. It's going to have a whole different feel to it. But you know on that Sunday it is for somebody else. And can you put aside your own desires on that Sunday morning and worship the Lord knowing that it's not in your sweet spot and it's a way that we've learned to prefer one another as a mosaic striving to live like you guys can clap it's okay if you want to clap it's cool so we learn we learn to prefer one another we've said we are going to be so what kind of a church are we we are a church that's seeking unity we are a church that wants unity we are a church that prefers one another i love it when people ask me what kind of a church is grace and maybe through the course of this talk you're going to have some good answers for people when they ask that but now paul goes into the rest of this and he seems to string together a whole bunch of random thoughts at first look it would seem like paul is just kind of taking a shotgun approach and giving us a whole bunch of one-liners and and a lot of us have even memorized a lot of these next section of the scripture but they all fit together with the time remaining i want to kind of show you how the rest of this passage all fits together with with one particular theme. So look at verse 4. Verse 4, Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. He didn't say rejoice in the Lord sometimes. He didn't say rejoice in the Lord when you feel like. He didn't say rejoice in the Lord when everything's perfect. He said rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. He seems to be wanting to make a point. Rejoice always. In case you didn't hear me, I want you to rejoice And the question is, are you able to have a spirit of celebration? Are we as a church able to have a spirit of celebration regardless of our circumstances? Are we people and are we a church that that honors God, that lifts God up even when things are difficult for us? I've been in this church for about 20 years. And I can tell you, we've had some really high highs and we've had some pretty low lows over those 20 years. And the one thing that I can say is when, this, when people show up on Sunday, we worship Jesus. We are a church that worships Jesus. We are a church that believes in the power of worship. You know, one of the things that, that Paul says, and we, we studied this a few weeks ago, he says, do everything without complaining. Now that's hard enough. But now he's saying, No, 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 no. It's not enough just not to complain. I want you to rejoice. Like, I can keep my mouth shut, but it's not enough for me just to not complain. He's saying, hey, do everything without complaining. No, as a matter of fact, do everything with a spirit of joy. Do everything with a song. I love that. One of the the greatest gifts in my short time with Norflet as he's been on staff is that that word of, of do you have a song? Not can you sing, but do you have a song? I have thought about that almost every day. Do I have a song? Am I rejoicing in my spirit for who God is and all God that has done in my, in my life? 
What kind of a church are we? Are we a church that can rejoice? Are we a church that worships? Do we rejoice and lift God up regardless of our circumstances? You know, the fact of the matter is, if we are, if we are a people who rejoice, if we keep that song in our spirit, if we have this, this ability to rejoice in all circumstances, it affects our disposition. It affects the way we respond to others. It affects our attitude and allows us to live into verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, when I started unpacking these, these, this, this section of scripture, knowing that I was going to preach on it, my first thought was I really wish that Paul had left this particular sentence out because it would have been a lot easier for me. Because the truth of the matter is, this is my nemesis. This is the verse that I need to spend the most time with because this isn't indicative of how I, how I live things out. Um, it's not always how I respond. So this is, is, this is not an uncommon occurrence for me. So I'll be going into a meeting that I know is going to have some um, tension in the meeting. We're trying to decide something or whatever the reason. And I will literally go into that meeting praying, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Five minutes in the meeting, I have no idea where that prayer is. Because anyone in the room would be thinking, wow, this guy is powering up. This guy is bringing the wrong stuff. This is a hard one for me. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. You know, one of the things that I have so appreciated about Brian is he has modeled this for me over the 10 years that I've been side by side of the eight years that I've worked with him. Sure. So for eight years I've worked, and, and over and over in pretty intense meetings, I have, I have seen Brian with just this gentle spirit. He responds to people with such a gentle response. We had one particular meeting that, that came to mind. I was thinking about this, and there was a gentleman that came to the church at the time. He's not here anymore, and he just didn't like me or Brian. He didn't like us at all. I'm not sure why he was here, um, but he was here for quite a while, and, and he was quite a detractor. He hated everything we did. Uh, you know, he would be the first to say we were going to hell, and we just got it all wrong. It was just, he was, and he was mean, and he was angry. It was just, he was just, it was a hard guy to be around, and he wanted to meet with us, and so we met in Brian's office, and he was just spewing out stuff and, and, and going, and I was waiting for Brian to let him have it. I was actually waiting for Brian to pick up a chair and go WWF on the guy, because that's what I wanted to do. But he didn't. And then the guy got up ready to storm out. He had said what he wanted to say. And he was, he was done. He got, got up and he started to storm out. And Brian so gently and so calmly just said, no, 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 no. You need to come back. And you need to sit down. And then he just began to talk to him. And kind of like I'm talking to you right now. Just with this soft, quiet voice. And it really disarmed this guy. Now we didn't, we didn't solve a whole lot there. But the truth of the matter is Brian responded with gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. I believe that part of our DNA, part of who we are as a church has been transferred. Brian is our leader in that gentle way that he leads, in that gentle way as president. It has become a part of who we are. Who, who are we as a church? What kind of a church are we? I really think we are a gentle church. I believe we are very gentle with one another. We receive each other well. It's part of who we are and part of our DNA because it's been transferred from Brian. It's been taught to us and it's been modeled for us. But the question I want to ask you is, does it spill over? Does it spill over into your home? Would your kids say you're gentle? Would your spouse say you're gentle? 
Does it spill over into your workplace? Would the people that work with you say, that, that, that person has such a gentle spirit. They are so, so, they're, just, they're so relationally gentle with us. There's just something very special about them. Does it spill over into your commute to work? Hmm. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And how do we get that done? Because the Lord is near. We have everything we need. God is right there beside us giving everything we need in order to respond the way we need to respond. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The fruit of the matter is if we rejoice in all circumstances, if we are gentle with people, if we're gentle in the way we respond, it will actually affect our anxiety level. How many of you would like to have less anxiety in life? I think we should probably all raise our hand. Look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious, do not have anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it won't make sense to you, but the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Hey, I am an anti-formula guy. I do not like it when a pastor says, here are three steps to to loving Jesus more. Here are four steps to what, I, I'm not sure that God is that formulaic, and sometimes that just really bothers me. But can I tell you, there is somewhat of a formula in this verse. There is somewhat of a process that we are to follow that allows us to unload our worry, that allows us to unload our anxious thoughts, that allows us to get rid of whatever it is that's causing all of that tension in your spirit. So when we look at the passage, it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition. And I think the and there has created a lot of confusion for us by prayer and petition. So there's multiple, there's different kinds of prayer, right? So there's adoration and worship, just when we're, we're just telling God how awesome he is and how much we love him. There's confession. When, we're, when we feel the conviction of God and we go back to God and we say, God, I'm sorry that I did that. Help me not to do it again. There's confession. There's thanksgiving. Thanks for all the blessings that you've given to us. There's all these different kinds of prayers, right? But what Paul is talking about here is one particular kind. of. This is where we are petitioning God. We are actually asking God for something. God is our Father. God loves us beyond our wildest imagination. It's okay. It's not only okay, it's in the word that we are to go to him and ask for things, but we're supposed to do it in a particular way. So if you were to, to look at this passage in the original language and unpack it, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, do not be anxious about anything, but ask God with thanksgiving, ask God with thanksgiving, and that's important, and the peace of God will guard your heart. We are to petition God because he loves us beyond our wildest imagination, but there is a caveat, there is a clause in here, and the clause is with thanksgiving, that we are to ask God with a heart of contentment, that we are to rejoice always, we are to have this joy in our hearts, we are to have this song in our spirit, and then we are to ask God for the things that he lays on our heart, to actually pray prayers of petition, and then it says the peace of God will guard your heart. The problem is so often we go to God and we are like little kids tugging on the pant legs of our children and, and crying and whining and complaining. Our prayers actually become grumbling. Please God, please God, come on God, give me this, give me that, give me a bigger car, give me a nicer house, fix this, change that. We have that whining spirit in us and Paul says, no, 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 no. I want you to know who God is. I want you to know the power of God in your life. I want you to know how much God loves you. And when you go to the throne of grace, I want you to have a spirit that is rejoicing, a heart of thanksgiving, and then boldly ask God for what you want. And then the peace of God 
will guard your hearts. The peace of God will guard your hearts. You know that Proverbs says that above all else, which sounds like it's pretty important, right? Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows out of it. Everything you do flows out of your heart. It's monumentally important that we learn to guard our hearts because our behaviors, our actions, our joy, our contentment, our, our courage, right, our satisfaction all comes out of our heart. Every behavior we have comes out of our heart. So what Paul is saying in this passage is when you learn to ask God, when you learn to petition God with thanksgiving in your heart, that that peace of God will guard your heart from anger, that the peace of God will guard your heart from bitterness. Your peace of God will guard your heart from discontent. The peace of God will guard your heart from rage. The peace of God will guard your heart from sin. And the question is, do we believe in the power of prayer? Do we really believe as a church? Do we really believe as individual in the power of prayer? What kind of a church are we? I believe we are a church of prayer. But I also think God is saying to us, it's time to step it up. I know you believe in prayer, Doug, but it's time that you really learn how to lean into prayer. That's what I feel like God is saying to me as an individual, and I think he's saying it to many of us as individuals, which tells me he's saying to us as a church, are we going to learn to really be a church that leans into prayer? We as the leadership at Grace know that God is calling us to foster a culture of prayer. There's so many good things going on. Did you know that before you came here this morning, before the 9 o'clock people came here, that people walked through the sanctuary and prayed over every single chair. Did you know that people were walking by and putting their hands in the chair and praying for you, knowing that you were going to be here in just a few short hours and praying that God would do something for you? Do you know that there's a group of people that meet on Wednesday night and they go through the prayer and praise that you get in the email and they go through that prayer and praise and they pray for each person on that list individually. That's why you need to send those requests and there's people praying. Did you know there's people praying for you. Did you know that people prayed over your seats? So one of the things we're asking is a way of fostering this culture of prayer is we want each and every one of you to stop and pray for us at 930. As a matter of fact, I would ask that you set your alarm, even now, even if you can't listen to me for the next three or four minutes, God will, God will cover all that, but set your alarm. Take out your phone, take out your watch, whatever you use is an alarm and set it. So, so your phone goes off at 9.30 every morning and you stop and pray. Imagine, just imagine if a thousand plus people prayed for grace every morning and imagine if they prayed prayers with thanksgiving for grace. If they said, Lord, thank you so much for 115 years of faithfulness to this congregation, for faithfulness on this corner. Thanks for the impact you've allowed us to have. Lord, help us to have more impact. Help us to be used by you in ways that we can't even imagine. Lord, pour out your spirit in us and use us in a way to do more than we ask or imagine. Do you think God would show up in that? Of course he would. So set your alarms and join us there. The other thing that I'm asking you to do is I want you to come a half hour early. I want all of you to come a half hour early. So if you are an 1110 person, that means you come at 1040. If you're a nine o'clock person, you're very late today, but it means you come at 830, right? And the idea is that we are gonna meet in that lobby and we are gonna gather together and we are gonna pray for the morning service. We are actually gonna beseech God to show up and do something that we didn't expect. We want God to do more in this place than we can ask or imagine. Actually, it says immeasurably more, more than we can even measure. That's what God wants to do. And we're going to ask him for that as we gather together in prayer. So imagine hundreds of people showing up. And the question was asked today, right after the first service, well, what are we going to do if too many people show up? Wouldn't that be great? 
I think we'll figure something out. That'll be a good problem to have. We may have to stop the rehearsal in here and come in here and be praying. And here's what God's going to do. He is going to change your heart as you prepare to prepare for worship. He is going to quiet your spirit. As you pray for that half hour, you will begin the service in a better place. There's something about rumbling in here 10 minutes late and being all scattered from the drive and the conversation in the car, having to get your spirit quiet before the Lord. Imagine if you use that half hour. Look, our services are short. It's still going to be a relatively short morning if you come here a half hour before the service. So show up. Show up in the lobby. Be there. Let's, let's just fill this place with hundreds of people praying for grace. What kind of a church are we? We are a church that believes in prayer. And then Paul kind of reminds everybody that, that look, you need to be, remember he started with being one in the Lord, being one in spirit, having the same mindset. And so he's helping people now with where he goes with the rest of this passage and helping them to understand how do I have the right mindset? How do I have my mind on the things that God wants me to have? So keep reading in verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, finally, church, finally, all of you in, in Philippi and the people greeting this letter 2,000 years later, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's any excellence or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, what you think about matters. What you think about matters. What you think about shapes who you are. The amount of time you spend thinking about the wrong thing has a catastrophic effect on who you are. The question is, is the movie you're watching, is the TV show you're watching, is the book you're reading, is the website you're spending time on, is, is, it, is it good, is it true, is it noble, is it right, is it pure, is it lovely, is it admirable, is it excellent, and if it's praiseworthy. And if it's not, you need to turn it off. You need to walk out of the theater. You need to do what you need to do to guard your heart because everything you do flows out of your heart. And if you're not the one that's being intentional about guarding your heart, then you're going to allow things in there that are going to be catastrophic, and it's going to send you in bad directions. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, Paul is writing, Paul says, we are to take every thought, we are to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We are to take captive every thought. How do we know which thoughts to take captive? How do we know which thoughts to, to get out of our mind? How do we know? And this is a, a litmus test, if you will. This is a screen or a lens. This is a way for us to, to test what's going on in our minds and say to ourselves, is it pure? Is it true? Is it noble? Is it trustworthy? Is it excellent? Is it praiseworthy? If it's not one of those things, then I need to replace it with something that is, right? So what is true? All truth is God's truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So anytime you're meditating on Jesus and who he was, then you're thinking about truth. You're thinking about who he is. But, but creation is truth. Redemption is truth. Life, the fact that God gives us breath, that's truth. All truth is God's truth. And Paul's saying, think about the things that are truth. Think about Jesus. Think about his amazing work on the cross. Think about redemption. Think about God who's breathed life into you. Think about what is noble. Think about what is right. This is a big one. Because I think this is one of the places where we really get ourselves into a quandary. Think about what is right. This is my opportunity to offend everybody in the room. Um, if you listen to political commentary on the radio, on the TV, whether it is liberal or conservative, whether it is left or it is right, you are being assaulted. 
You are being assaulted in your spirit because their job is to convince you that the world is all wrong, that whatever's happening is wrong. There is no right being taught. It's wrong, wrong, bad, it's terrible, it's awful, and you will begin to become angry, you will become agitated, you will become fearful. It will drive fear into you. When you listen to that rambling on, you are not listening to the voice of God. And Paul says, no, I want you to listen to what is right. And it doesn't mean we put our head in the sand and we don't look at what's going on in the political climate. It doesn't mean we can't see things objectively, but they're not helping you to see things objectively. They are pouring venom into your heart and you will not be able to stay in a place of being worshipful. It will squelch your song that's in your spirit. You will not rejoice in everything. You will not be gentle with people. Somebody will say something from the other side and you will pounce on them. It, it just creates this tension and this fear in us. We need to think about what is right. Think about what is lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Can I tell you what's not any of those things? Pride, jealousy, Anger, gluttony, envy, hate, revenge, unforgiveness, bitterness. But the truth of the matter is, these are the things that so often consume us. I cannot tell you how many nights sleep I have lost in my life having an imaginary conversation with somebody who has crossed me. When I see that person and they say this, I'm going to say that. And when they say this, I'm going to say that. And I'll literally be laying in bed thinking, God, I don't want to think about this. Well, when they say this, I'm going to think about that. And the night goes and I keep waking up and I keep thinking. And I'm going to say, and, and, and by the end of the night, I'm so stirred up and I don't have a song in my heart. And I'm not worshiping God and everything. I have worked myself up. And maybe that's why when I go into the meeting, I can't have my gentleness be evident all because I have planned out every word I'm going to say and I can't wait for them to say what I thought they were going to say so I could unload all that stuff on them and then they're going to know who and what they did, right? Am I the only one that goes through this? <laughs> I don't think so. Think about what is excellent. Think about what is praiseworthy. The fact of the matter is what you listen to on the radio, what you watch on TV, the movies that you go to, the TV, the, the books that you read, the things that you let ingest into you, the things that you allow yourself to stew over all have this shaping impact on who you are as a follower of Jesus. It affects the way we respond to people, whether or not we're gentle or not. One of the highlights of my week, uh, Kind of a defining moment, if you will, was um, I, I was doing the prep for the sermon, and I decided to go through and look up in the original language what, what each of these words are, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. What is, it, what is the definition in the original Greek? And the more I look up, the more excited I got. And I want to just go through, and I want to give you the definitions of these words. This is going back to the original language, the original Greek. To be true is to be unconcealed and brought into the light, to be taken from darkness to light. That is so cool. To be noble is to be honorable. To be right is to be just in the eyes of the Lord. The word there is the same word we often see as righteous. Think about the things that are righteous, just in the eyes of the Lord. To be pure, this is one of my favorite ones, is to be prepared for worship. To be pure is to be ceremonially clean. That is so cool. To be lovely is to be acceptable. To admirable is to be spoken of kindly. To be excellent is to be upright. And to be praiseworthy is to be approved. You know, when it all comes back around, when it all comes to this, the reality is it all comes back to Jesus. 
It all comes back to knowing the power of the cross. It all comes back to knowing who we are when we accept Jesus as our personal Savior. Do you know what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy? You are. When you accepted Christ, you became all of these things. When you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, you became righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of the blood of Christ on the cross. And Paul is saying to us, are you going to live up to that noble calling? Are you going to be the person that God has called you to be? Are you going to live into all of these things? When you are in a quandary, maybe what we need to do is think about who we are in Christ because we are noble, we are righteous, we are lovely, and we are admirable to be spoken of. I love this, to be spoken of kindly. Do you know the scriptures say that Jesus prays for us? You know that it says that Jesus goes to God on our behalf and speaks kindly of us? It's a descriptor of who we are in Christ and who we are to be growing into and who we are to becoming. What kind of a church are we? We are a mosaic striving together to live like Jesus, to live into our noble calling, to be the people of God that God has called us to be. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask as I, as I pray, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come down and just be down at the front so that you can see who they are before we get to prayer. So you guys can go ahead and come down. And Ron's going to come up, and he's going to play, and I'm just going to pray for us. And I just want to encourage you to something. Brian has been talking for a few weeks about these moments when God sort of knocks and God sort of stirs. And it's not just the moment when we come to Christ, although that could be your moment this morning. But if you're in one of those moments where something happened today that is stirring in you, you this, this child dedication or the baptism or, or the words that were spoken or the words that Jamie read and, and saying, if any of those stirred something in you and you desire to be prayed with, we want you to come down. Don't miss the moment. Come down and just say, you know what? I'm not sure why, but I, I want some prayer. For some of you, the idea of contentment in your life is hard to fathom because you have so much going on. Allow us to pray over you. Allow us to just pray prayers of petition with thanksgiving so that the peace of God will rest on you. That's what this whole thing's about. Every Sunday, people are down here. They want to pray with you. That's why they're there. So we're going to pray. And once we're done praying, I would just ask, if you don't want to come down for prayer, that's great. Just to kind of quietly go out and allow those people that do to come down and to receive prayer. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for Philippians. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for this amazing truth that you desire for us as our dad who loves us beyond our wildest imagination that we would come to you and pray prayers of petition with thanksgiving. You desire a conversation with us. You desire to speak to us, and you desire for us to speak to you. Lord, that is so awesome. The God of the universe who spoke everything into existence desires to walk with us. How awesome is that? Lord, help us to live in that truth. Help us to live in the fact that we are righteous before you, that we are ceremonially clean, that we can walk up to the throne of grace and stand at the foot of our Father and pray. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be. I know that we haven't arrived. I know that we're on a journey, and it's a journey that will never stop, but help us to grow into and to be the church you've called us to be. Help us to unleash your spirit in this place. Lord, I pray for the people that are feeling the nudging of your spirit to, to get some prayer. I pray that they would not 
leave without seizing the moment. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' awesome and holy name we pray. Amen. You have a great Sunday. Be blessed.